I'm Kyle Harrison, general partner at Contrary, and I don't drink coffee, but I have a crippling addiction to Diet Coke. Welcome, welcome, everyone. We are back with another MLOps Community Podcast. I am your host, Dimitri Os, and today I am talking with none other than Kyle, who you just heard say he doesn't like coffee. Now, this conversation was fascinating on so many different levels. I really appreciate the report that he put together, which, if you do not know, is called The Openness of AI. We'll leave a link to that in the description. If you haven't read it yet, go and check it out. He got into why he wrote the report, what the report's all about, obviously, and then the dangers that he calls out in the report. And one of those dangers being the centralization of power when it comes to AI. And really, we're talking about open AI a lot in this conversation and the pros and cons that come with open AI. I thought it was fascinating how deep he went into the privacy part And for me, it felt like, or it feels like, lots of people, privacy is one of those things like peace on earth and the data mesh. Everyone wants it, but at the end of the day, you're willing to sacrifice a lot if there is an easier and less friction way of doing something. And to timestamp this, we are recording it about a day or two after ChatGPT Enterprise came out. So we talked a lot about that and how trustworthy OpenAI is when it comes to dealing with your data. And are they going to train GPT-5 on your data? Well, maybe, maybe not. I thought we had a really cool discussion around that and the potential that is there. And so his ability to be super bullish on lots of companies opting away from using OpenAI was fascinating but he also talked in the report and in this conversation about how open a strategy right now open ai's strategy right now is to just proliferate the market and get into the hands of everyone and be the best and easiest use case of trying to do anything with ai because that's the playbook as soon as they are in everyone's hands then three years down the road once they've trained whatever on everyone's data and we don't like it and we want to rise up it's going to be a lot harder to rip off that band-aid so we get into all of that and more in this conversation kyle is a general partner at contrary he leads series a and growth stage investing and he joined them when he was a partner and he went up to general partner he's definitely making some moves His portfolio, this is what was awesome to me. We talked a lot about his portfolio companies in this call, some of them being Ramp, Replit, Cohere, Snowflake, and Databricks. It's interesting one that he went with Snowflakes and Databricks. And by the way, he's also got a substack where he regularly shares his analysis on the venture capital landscape you can click the link in the description to check that out. It's called Investing 101. So let's get into it. Before we do, the thing that would mean the world to me is if you can share this episode with one friend that you think it would be valuable to, that would mean the world to me. So let's go. We came on here to talk about all things AI, and I want to dive into the hype around AI. You've been going deep into the openness and the closeness of AI. You've also been just thinking a lot about the hype and if there's real businesses to be built on top of this. Can you just give us your, where are you sitting right now? What's your angle? How are you looking at this space? Absolutely. The most interesting thing about what we're going through is, I mean, by no, you know, by every stretch of the imagination, this is a huge paradigm shift in technology and everybody is sort of appreciating it. The one thing that I think is most interesting when I talk to companies that have been operating the space, people that have been building in this world for a long time, for years and years, um, is that so many of those people, they feel like they have been maybe not standing still, but like slow and steady wins the race. And then all of a sudden, ChatGPT was this wake-up call for a lot of people. But there wasn't necessarily this, like, fundamental change 
in the underlying technology. It had been slowly produced. Transformer architecture has been around for a long time. It had slowly been improving and what it was capable of. ChatGPT was just a thing that put it front and center in everybody's mind. And so really what you're going through is this like awareness of the capability that exists and, and how it's changing and stuff like that. That's super powerful, no doubt. What you are now seeing is this kind of bifurcation of where companies are positioned in this space that is pretty interesting. And you effectively have three buckets. So first bucket, you have these incumbents that have established products, established distribution. They're, they're massive, whether it's like companies like Microsoft or companies like a Canva Notion. or Adobe or whatever. Yeah. Notion, exactly. They can These incumbents can roll this stuff out. That's one bucket. The second bucket, you have folks that are trying to be the foundation model, right? They want to be the provider that as many people as possible for as many use cases as possible are building. And that requires uh, pretty extensive training, data, access, capital, all this stuff, right? And that, yeah. It, yeah, exactly. And it's a totally, it's a very unique game. And then you have everything else. Every other company that's trying to build some kind of AI tooling, orchestration, fine tuning, you know, whatever other sort of the whole MLOps world, which we can dive into and and is a place that I think is can be really powerful. But I and then there's these the sort of um, use case tools where it's like they have built, you know, people the, the sort of um, pejorative term is the wrapper around ChatGPT, right? Um, yeah. Not every company is that, right? I think that you can leverage GPT and not be just a wrapper not just middleware, but there is a spectrum of companies where some of them are literally just, you know, they slapped some some UI and, and ChatGPT is the entire backend, right? Um, but that whole swath of companies is the majority of AI companies. The biggest thing that I think is problematic is that a lot of the power and influence and, and sort of um, capabilities and stuff, a lot of that happens in this middle bucket where companies are trying to build the foundation models. And that is probably the area where there is the most potential for centralization of like power and influence and stuff like that. And when we wrote, so for contrary research, we wrote this report, The Openness of AI. And that is a big section of what we dove into is what does that mean when you have companies that become these really important foundation for everything else when they are pretty centralized and pretty controlled by a small subset of companies? Yeah, and they have all the attention. It's like they've sucked the air out of the room. Yeah, I mean, I'd say they sucked the... It's it's basically like attention. It's the GPUs, to your point. It's the capital, like uh, the headlines. There's so much fervor focused on this. I, honestly, like rightfully so to some extent, right? Like I think that these businesses are going to be really critical players as this evolves, um, even you look at like the acquisition that OpenAI made where it's literally a design studio and it kind of demonstrates their intentions to build more consumer facing products, not just be an API product. That's powerful. Like, so these companies are important, but I think the thing we need to step back is understand the trickle effect of, you know, who has the capabilities at this point in time and what does that mean for every other company for better or for worse? Yeah, it's funny you talk about this the idea of the wrapper or I, I kind of look at it as the application layer and it feels like there's the de developer tools that are being built for ML or now the hot new term is LLM ops, right? And so what was ML ops now has died and gotten reincarnated <laughs> as LLM ops. And <laughs> that's so I, it's so funny. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard uh, including other VCs say, yeah, you know, like we would do a hackathon with you, but we just were talking about the name and ML Ops doesn't seem like uh, it's in style anymore. <laughs> Give <laughs> me a break, the, man. Yeah, seriously, talk about term of the month, geez. Yeah, exactly. So the, the thing about this application layer is that there are some, there's revenue being generated there and there's serious revenue being generated there from like zero to a million really quickly. And I've talked about this before. What I think is fascinating with that is the quality of that revenue and the ability to 
create that moat. So what happens when AI, OpenAI goes and they have their design studio now replicate what you're trying to do. And all of a sudden it's like OpenAI has all of the attention and the air in the room. And so they put out the same product as you, but now they get all of that uh, love and all of those dollars go towards it. And so building those moats is something that I know a lot of the community has been thinking about and how to effectively build a moat. And it seems like in that bucket that you were talking about where where it's like the Notions or the Microsofts, they already have their moat and they're just incorporating AI into their products, but it's not their main product. It's on the other side of things where AI is your main product and you're leading with that. That's where I feel like things are very dicey and it's a bloodbath right now. It is, the, the way that I think about it is, I mean, number one, if OpenAI can roll out your product in a couple of months, you never had a moat to begin with, for sure. Like, there are, there are some elements of, like, how much does a competitive advantage really exist versus just a first mover advantage? And the vast sure. majority of that stuff is, um, is first mover advantage, right? Like, they were the first to get there to do that thing. There's a lot of the sort of you know, copy.ai and Jasper and stuff like that, like those types of companies, they were just the first to get there leveraging GPT to produce copy. And they branded themselves as a copywriter's tool and and you know, um that's first mover advantage. It's not it's not a it's not a competitive moat. Um it's not defensible. Um the way that we that I look at companies today and think about defensibility and their capabilities is you have to spike in something that is not the thing that everyone else is racing to commoditize, right? If if the thing that you're good at is the thing that they, that everybody else who has billions of dollars is rapidly trying to commoditize because they want to get into the install base and be the thing that everybody's built on top of, like you're screwed because you're just going to get swept under the rug in that race to the bottom of commodities, right? And so we've made investments in companies, take for example, like Replit, where Replit is not, it, it's, I would, I would argue it is not an AI company in exclusivity, right? They don't think about themselves as we build AI products, full stop. That's all we do. We're just focused on AI. They are a developer ecosystem. They're trying to build a tool that can do everything you need to build products and to write code and to host it and, and build out applications and something like that. They're doing all those things. Like that's what they spike at is they're a very good developer environment they are able to leverage AI to do things like Ghostwriter, which is their code assistant. Um, and that's great, but it feeds into their flywheel that exists independent of AI. Even if we'd had no sort of generative code, you know, breakthroughs or whatever, they, they couldn't do any of that. Copilot hadn't happened, whatever. Even if we had none of that, Repli would still be a pretty good product as a developer environment, right? And they are able to just take advantage of this stuff. It's the same thing. We have another company who I would argue has made some plays in this sort of foundation model, which is Nomic. And um, Brandon and Andre, who are the two co-founders of Nomic, they were my co-authors on, they were some of my co-authors on the openness of AI report that we put out. Um, but Nomic is really unique because they also spike in a very different place where they have built a data visualization tool that allows you to visualize all of the individual data points that an LLM is made up of, right? So you look at like stable diffusion. They literally, we have a we have a co-working space in New York for contrary does, and Nomic that printed us out a canvas of stable diffusion. You can literally see this sort of like image map. You can't see the images because they're tiny dots, right? There's billions of them. Uh-huh. But you can see like, oh, this green corner is Kermit the Frog corner. Like you can visualize all the different subsets of this model, this image model. And that tool, which is called Atlas, that's it's a it's where they spike. They are an incredible tool for visualizing and fine-tuning and understanding the underlying data behind a model. They use that to build GPT for all, which is an open source uh, foundation model you can use. And it basically is as performant as GPT 3.5. Uh, it can run locally. It requires way less compute. It's pretty well trained. Like all these different things they were able to do are great. But if it was just GPT for all versus OpenAI, that'd be really tough because they're rapidly trying to commoditize that. But what Nomic is doing is just demonstrating their core competency, which is this entire engine around data visualization and understanding models. And they were able to use that for a particular use case. So basically the lawyers who are suing 
uh, Stability AI are going to be calling up Nomic pretty soon and asking this for that visual. <laughs> they can definitely drill into it. I mean, it's a, that's a whole other super interesting point is like where when you start to have models that are trained on the sort of broad swath of the internet, um, where is the attribution come from? I think is is quite interesting. It's a whole other bucket in and of itself, but it's a very interesting bucket. Yeah, that, that is fascinating because, of course, I think we're seeing it hit the head most with the artists, like the visual artists, but there's also the lawsuit against Copilot and all of the code that the open source code that Codepilot was trained on. And so that is a very true. It is fascinating to think about. But getting back on track, I understand this idea of go with what your core competency is. Focus on that and bring in AI to leverage that core competency. Don't bring in AI to be something that you think is going to compete against these people's whose core competency is AI, where it's like the open AIs or the anthropics out there. And so that that's great to look at. Now, let's dive into this report a little bit more because I want to get the whole breakdown of how did you even get the idea of creating it? Why did you feel inspired to make this? And was it after Llama 1 came out, I'm guessing? And you were like, oh, maybe we should talk about the juxtaposition that we have here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, so a big part of it is um, chatting with the guys at Nomic, right? So the, I mean, we've invested in the company. We've worked with them really closely. Um, we we published the report after Lama had come out, um, but it was still, there was still a lot of limitations and stuff and, um, you know, no commercial use cases and things like that. Really, if you step back, I think the the thing that spurred us to go down this rabbit hole was the increasing, um, you know, sort of limitations on the visibility of GPT. And so you look at like GPT-4 and um, so some of the folks at Nomic have posted a bunch of stuff about this where it's basically like the more that OpenAI has said, we're going to limit what visibility we share on the underlying data, the methodology, all the weights, all these different components of how we built GPT-4, the less capable anybody is who's using it to understand it. Like, it's basically like we've kind of gone through this like arc of like originally people would refer to AI as a black box effect. And it was literally a black box because nobody knew, nobody really understood why the output was the output. Like, we just kind of understood the algorithm and there was an output and, you know, who knows? Like, uh, and then increasingly it's become more understandable. Transformer architecture has absolutely made that more us more capable of understanding how models get built and to try and better understand attribution. And OpenAI is increasingly deciding to put it back in a black box because it's a lot easier to monetize something that people don't understand, right? It's a lot easier. It goes back to the whole lawsuit that we were just talking about. They sure. probably are seeing, oh yeah, you know what? Those guys, Copilot's getting sued, Stability's getting sued. We're one step away from getting sued because we just used every blog out there to train GPT. Yeah. Well, and OpenAI is in it, right? Because Copilot is built on GPT. Um, like the uh, Microsoft, the Microsoft GitHub OpenAI relationship is right at the center of that lawsuit. So they're they're already in it. Um, but the so like the increasing desire to close off some of those components. They do it in the name of safety. Like there is this whole argument of AI safety that allows people to sort of close things off increasingly. When in reality, the main reason for closing that stuff off is competition. And the problem with that, and, and um, Clem Dong, who's the CEO of Hugging Face, he makes this argument the best. In the report, we cite both a conversation he had at um, the Cerebral Valley con conference a couple months ago as well as his testimony before the U.S. Congress, where he talks about the number one threat in AI, the number one danger in AI is concentration of power. And people are trying to limit the visibility into their models because it allows them to maintain more control over what's happening and, and allow the sort of distribution of that capability to be less poignant. And, and what, that hap what that causes is that you have a sort of, sort of long tail of companies, of nonprofits, of governments, of everything that are more limited in their ability to respond and more dependent on one central failure point 
And the argument is, well, we don't want the bad guys to get the capability. And the reality is like the vast majority of technical capability that has ever been like created, eventually the bad guys get a hold of it. The thing that keeps the bad guys in check is that everybody else has it too. And so you you have this sort of like um, equalization that if we if we allow a, lot, a couple of big companies to be the centralized source of this capability, you put everybody at a lot more risk in the name of, of AI safety. It feels like they know exactly what they're doing and they're going with it because the more that they can put that distance between them and whoever else is trying, the better they are. And I have a friend who is working at Google and I was asking him to present at one of the conferences that we put on. And he was saying, you know, right now at Google, it's a little bit like people aren't super excited about being transparent anymore because they feel like they got hoodwinked a little bit. They put out the transformer architecture and then boom, next thing you know, there's some other company that is not only using it, but then not sharing like they were sharing, like Google was sharing everything and they were very transparent. I mean to the best of my knowledge, let's just caveat that because there was probably a lot that they weren't sharing, but they were being pretty transparent in these different papers that they were putting out back in the day. And then the next thing you know, they've got a company that's leveraging that technology, except they're doing exactly what you're talking about, where they're putting it into this black box and they're not saying what they're doing and how they're doing it. And that's just like, okay, you're, you're not playing fair in some respect. It also comes down to, again, when you go back to incentives, you're trying to understand who is incentivized to do what and why and stuff. Google, for a long time, was at the cutting edge of AI and kind of thought of as the leader, at least in terms of like technical talent. That's where the majority of really exceptional people were. And, um, sure. and I had the chance a couple of weeks ago to interview Aiden Gomez, who's the CEO of Cohere, and, and talk about his experience. He was one of the co-authors of the attention is all you need paper um, led to the transformer architecture. And, um, you know, you look at why would companies respond the way they would respond. And for a lot of the larger companies, the Googles and Microsofts of the world, the argument is it comes back to cloud computing and Microsoft's massive swings in this space are largely driven by their intention of getting as much of this compute as possible to be happening on Azure. Uh, to be able to compete and to be able to push that forward. And the reason that you have a company like Meta, who is comfortable releasing Llama and trying to be much more open, is because they don't have a cloud computing business. And they are advantaged if we just want the sort of capabilities to expand as quickly as possible. And if those capabilities expand, we can then leverage those in our products, which are really our core business. And that's, it's much easier to see the through line where that gets better for everybody because you have products that are largely free. You can use those products. Those products get better. You get performance, whatever. And everybody and everybody else can benefit from that those advances as well. If you have one company who's trying to maintain the advances themselves and, and be able to sort of centralize as much of that, um, both like power and profit into one platform... It just becomes a lot harder for everyone else to benefit from that. Really, it, it just it just leads to more and more monopoly power for a small subset of companies. Man, what a plot twist though, huh? Meta, the company no one thought would be the open openness, the poster child of openness. They're putting out the open source AI. Well, it's interesting. You look at like one of the case studies we talk about in the in the deep dive is the TensorFlow versus PyTorch sort of evolution, right? And and if, I, if I've got my timelines correctly, it was, so TensorFlow came first, it came from Google, and it was yep. sort of the machine learning framework that everybody was using. And very quickly, um, when when Meta released uh, PyTorch in 2016, that, I mean, it's just it's just sort of hands down. I think the, the quote from the report that we have from one of the engineers we talked to is, um, they're just eating... PyTorch has eaten TensorFlow's lunch, right? Um, yeah. And so there is actually precedent for Meta to be the company that becomes the bastion of um, of open source. I think the thing that people are more surprised by is that there there wasn't like PyTorch and TensorFlow, like there was no moral like <laughs> like under uh, uh, narrative, right? Like sub narrative. 
Um, because uh-huh. it was just like it was just like a machine learning framework that you could use, and it's like oh, like they did better, and it was open, and they had better contributors, and it worked out, whatever. Here, there is like a moral um, sub narrative, and that is what I think surprises people. Is there like nobody? It's like if open source feels like the just like morally better place to be in AI. Nobody expected Meta to be the like moral leader, right? Because that yeah. that's where they have fallen down, where people feel like it's this it's this sort of like enemy of democracy or whatever, and all these issues. Which like I don't know that I buy into that narrative per se. Like I think there's a whole other conversation about about like human nature that you can have. And it's like technology usually just uh like amplifies what's already there as opposed to creating what's there. Um but anyway, I, I think like that's another piece of the deep dive where like you can you can think about what are the moral implications of open versus closed technology? And most people say, hey, I got to run a business. I got to turn a profit. It, it needs to be closed. But there are a lot of companies, Databricks being one of them, that has done a really good job of leveraging open source really meaningfully while still being able to have a sustainable business model. The question that I have coming back to this is, at the end of the day, if you want to do things open source, especially if you're that end user that's just trying to hack together some app, that's going to get you to a million bucks over the weekend, which we've seen happen a lot with these GPT wrappers. You're as much as you love open source. Are you going to go out of the way and not use open AI? That's the big question that I have. So there's, I think there are two groups of people that will have very different responses. And so I think, I think to your point, there is a lot of people who will choose the sort of like path of least resistance. And if open AI is is sort of just like the most well-known or whatever, they'll kind of go down that path. On the one hand, you have what represent pretty massive industries. So you have healthcare, financial services, government, uh, a lot of these highly regulated industries are very concerned about the implications of their sort of data relationship with open AI's models. And uh, we were we were chatting about this a little bit before, right? Where it's like, um, you look at um, so just recently, OpenAI announced uh, ChatGPT Enterprise, um, and they they tout a lot of sort of enterprise grade security and privacy, right? SOC two, data encryption, whatever. Um, and I think that that is uh, that those are the check boxes that most companies look for, right? To just say like, hey, have you done the kind of bare minimum? What will uh-huh. be unique about this relationship in leveraging somebody else's foundation model is that there, there's a there's a difficulty in understanding the attribution that leads to a particular model, um, and OpenAI's ability to say yes, we are SOC two compliant, and we do have data encryption, and we do have these protections. It's like, right, but is there any way to confirm that none of my data has ever been used for you to train and improve GPT-5 or whatever? And it's like, that's pretty hard to audit. Like, maybe they will make the argument that, of course, we have these separate, these, you know, barriers between your data and our models and whatever. But it's super hard to audit. And it's very easy to say, you can still be SOC 2 compliant and still have data exhaust. Because if you still leverage a model that's been trained on data and you didn't technically use that data to train GPT-5, but GPT-5 can leverage other things you've done, there's there's implications there that I, I just think like are not easy to say, oh, definitively, we've never used that stuff. So highly regulated industries are going to be um, much more careful. No, I will not recommend your podcast. As the ML lead engineer at DQB Bank, I'm definitely not wanting other engineers to have all this relevant information, and I will not give my name, which is Lena. So definitely, I do not recommend this podcast. And then the second thing, I think, is that we talk about this in the report, one of the limitations in this space right now is just a dramatic shortage of technical expertise, like human capital, right? Like there's there's not enough people. And so that's why these big companies compete so dramatically. Like it's like the joke is that um, an AI researcher can make as much as an NFL quarterback, right? Like it's so competitive for this very small pool of talent. But I think that people who, as that talent grows and increases and there's more people that specialize in these things and understand this stuff, the more that people pride themselves on building an expertise internally and want to have particular capabilities and flexibility and whatever, 
Um, the more that talent is, be, it gets more evenly distributed. The more those companies will also be uncomfortable with the sort of um, you know enterprise version of OpenAI's products. They'll they'll look to build their own capabilities internally. Um, which is the same that happens in open source today. Like you have really big companies. I mean, Uber is a really good example where they had dozens of open source products that came from Uber that they used to build a, a ton of different pieces of their of their stack. And I think it'll be very similar. Is that there will always be companies that will say we can build this capability internally, and so we want the open source, you know, foundation, and then we can build on top of that and whatever. I think there will be a lot of companies like that, and increasingly more companies and larger companies that have their own AI capabilities and stuff like that. I think those two groups make up a big a big chunk of the industry that OpenAI could sell to. The long tail, for sure. Like, it's easy to just use the thing. But I think it's it's not a open and closed case of, oh, OpenAI has already won the day on being able to offer these products to everybody. It, yeah, it's funny because it almost feels like that long tail is who we hear the most from on Twitter. And those are the Twitter demos that you see. And so it seems like everybody is on it. And then when you go into these big companies, I would even argue that potentially they're not even using large language models. A lot of them are still just doing quote unquote traditional ML and trying to figure that out. And so there is a few things to your point though that I wanted to mention that I think is also worth noting. One is... I wonder how many people are going to look back and say, yeah, you know, the track record OpenAI has with doing what they say they're going to do is not that good. So I'm not sure how much trust they've built up by saying, hey, we're OpenAI, and then they close everything off. So that already is working against them. How many people are going to remember that or care about that or actually use that in their judgment call? Who knows? That's up for discussion too. But the other piece is that one of the, I got to give credit to John Savage in our uh, community today because I was posting that meme that I was showing you earlier, which shows the guy getting all excited and he's saying, ooh, all that private data to train GPT-5 on. And that's basically OpenAI's enterprise version right now. And John Savage said, you know, I wonder if it's not that they're going to train GPT-5 on it, but they're going to use it as test sets. So they're going to use that data for their test sets. And there's probably going to be a ton of models that they create, but never actually release. And they never get outside of their walled garden. And nobody's ever going to know about, but it is used with your data. And that is, it speaks exactly to what you were saying. Like, how do we know that our data doesn't get leaked because a model that does go to the public wasn't trained on top of that with some like reinforcement learning through AI feedback. I think it'll follow a very similar curve to what happened just in like um, machine learning more broadly and like um, algorithmic input and stuff with like Facebook and social and ad, like basically ad delivery. Um, the entire intelligence apparatus around advertising over the first sort of, you know, Gen 1, Gen 2 of, of social media. It was really just like, it, it, it's funny to people or like confusing to people who work in social media and in data tracking and stuff like that, the like public outcry of like, wait a minute, like you're using my data to sell me ads. And it's like, that's so immoral and so disgusting and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, ah, that was just the best way to do it. Like we, I don't, there's no better way to like serve you personalized ads or whatever. Like we need to understand yeah. your user data and you opted into it and blah, blah, blah. I think you will see a similar curve of the long tail of people who are just like, yeah, open AI. Oh, SOC 2, sick. Like we're good. Check the box. Use the thing. Let's move on. A couple of years from now, you start to realize like we, the, the more we come to understand attribution of data and the implications for different models the more you will have people a little bit of an outcry of like, I didn't realize that my, it won't be like, I didn't realize my data was being used to train that model because they promised they wouldn't do that. But it's like, well, I didn't understand that my data exhaust can generate training sets that can then be used in different ways or whatever. And it's like, we better understand the attribution to say, oh, I can audit this model and say that it came from this, which came from this, which came from your data, like surprise. And then you have this sort of like cookies, GDPR type of response. And mm. the long tail just doesn't understand. But I think most of those companies that are number one, 
hyper worried about because they're so highly regulated, they're hyper worried about their data, where it goes, what it's used for, whatever. And so they basically want to run everything locally as much as possible. And number two, the people who do have the expertise to understand, hey, like just using, you know, the enterprise offering from OpenAI, that is not going to keep our us as sort of data secure as we would like. Yeah, and it goes back to what you were saying earlier on the companies like OpenAI are trying to make it harder and harder for someone to understand how the models are trained so that at the end of the day, if something like that were to happen or potentially already is happening, we're not going to know. And how are we ever going to know, right? That's the hard part. Well, it's also why, like I say, and I, I've had pushback on this argument, but I I think that OpenAI and uh, a lot of these other companies, like they would love to see this get, uh, I'd say OpenAI in particular, because they have a very unique relationship with Microsoft and very unique sort of corporate distribution in a way that like the other Anthropic and Coheres, they, they have some corporate investors, but they don't have the same like relationship as OpenAI does with Microsoft. And so I'd say this is maybe even uniquely OpenAI wants this. But I would argue that OpenAI wants the sort of foundation model use cases, general purpose model use cases to become as commoditized as possible, as quickly as possible. Okay. Because if they can get GPT into everything, into everything that runs, every everything you hear, every new tool you hear about, and you look at it, it's already kind of happened, right? Most of the companies, these incumbents who have rolled out AI products, most of them are building on uh, GPT or, 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 um, or Dolly. Um, and you look at like, like Replit is a unique um, exception to this where they went in and built and figured out their own stack. And they have a great blog post on their blog about it where they talk about, here's how we thought about using this from Salesforce and this from different things and stuff like that. But very few companies are doing that because they don't have that technical expertise or the like attention or foresight or whatever. And so most people are just going to use GPT or whatever is least available. And if OpenAI can get it as broadly distributed as possible, as quickly as possible, then when you do have that up, up cry in a couple of years, outcry in a couple of years, it's so much harder to get them out because they're everywhere. It's the same. Yes. I mean, Microsoft is this, and this is a Microsoft playbook. Like you, I, you couldn't get out if you wanted to. Like Microsoft Teams did so well. Not because it's a better product. In my argument, in my opinion, it is a much worse product than like Slack. But it's it's freaking everywhere. It's like corporate malware. Like it's just right. OS is just <laughs> everywhere. Like like um, Office and stuff is everywhere. And that's that's the Microsoft playbook. And I think that that is the OpenAI playbook. And if they can get everywhere, it doesn't matter if you disagree with how they handle things. They're everywhere, and you can't. It's so much harder to rip out. Oh man, that's so good. Corporate malware. That is a good one. So let's talk about traditional ML for a minute because I think there is a conversation worth having. You were saying, yeah, Replit went through the hard motion of creating their own LLM. A lot of people out there, as you mentioned in the openness of AI report, are going to grab Llama if they are more open source leaning. But then there's a lot of companies, your portfolio companies, including like Ramp, they're doing some incredible traditional ML where I consider these days I've kind of made the line in my head of traditional ML is tabular or structured data and anything unstructured is more AI. And so I know it's not perfect, but whatever. That is how I look at it a little bit. Now, when it comes to the traditional ML and companies like Ramp, they are still gaining a ton of value from this ML that they're doing. Yet, how are how do you feel that these companies should be looking at the whole ecosystem that they're in? And is there, I guess, in your eyes, is there a play for them like uh should they be stuffing llms into stuff where they don't need to it feels like the product managers life got a whole lot harder over the last uh six months because everybody wants ai in their products and so i i think about it and it's like how to keep that core competency without losing your mind right so what are you seeing with these ml 1.0 companies that is 
a good way of doing it? I think that every company is is super unique in the approach that they should take. There's a quote from Star Wars where they say only a Sith deals in absolutes. And the irony is that that is in itself an absolute, like to say that only, you know. And so I think this is like there's generalities are very dangerous. The only general rule is that general rules are dangerous. Um, and I think that that is true of every company. So any company that tries to say, oh, we need to do this instead of this because that's the hype is probably not doing things well. Um, like they're, they need to respond. But if that's their decision making for how they're going to build a product, it's just based on like, this is the hypiest thing and we need to put it in the thing. And so we can put the .ai on the end of one of our landing pages or whatever. I think that's dangerous. And I think that's probably not a great product organization. The companies that have done as well, Ramp being one of them, the companies that have done as well are saying, what are we already doing? Like what are already our core competencies? And what in what ways could this technology be leveraged to continue to improve the core competency that we have and the thing that we're doing? And Ramp has done that really well in in sort of um, understanding their core competency of managing this sort of you know financial stack that you're managing, and then be able to leverage intelligence on top of that, both in terms of like you can ask and answer questions about your finances, but also just better understanding um, the underlying data that you've offered up to them. Um, that is a that is the right approach. I think anybody who says like oh we're not doing machine learning anymore, we're using LLMs or whatever. I think that's just like a very, it's like a very aesthetic surface level way of doing things. I think everybody needs to, for themselves, figure out what is the approach they need to take that will best lend itself to their core competency. Um, like that, that's how the best products will be made and the best companies will be made. Another thing that comes to my mind as you're saying that is, do you feel like it's possible that we've gotten... 90% there when it comes to AI, but that extra 5 to 10%, that could be another, what, however long, let's just say for sake of throwing out numbers, another 10 years before anything happens. And so we're all sitting here talking about the beauties and the hype of AI and how incredible it is. And then we have another AI winter. I think that this is one of the reasons why people who hear the like AGI, AI doomerism think it's so ridiculous is because um, like I, I think that from in terms of like the capability, like if I think about like SaaS, for example, like just as a, as a sort of distribution mechanism or cloud computing or whatever. I think that even those are still like, maybe SaaS is like 70, 80%, maybe cloud computing is 50, 60%. AI is like maybe 10%. And like the the distance, the, the gap from where we are today, all the things that could be done to make it functionally capable in production and all these things to get to like AGI supercomputers that take over the world, there's still so much to go. Um, and again, Clem, the CEO of Face, he makes this joke where, it's like a lot of a lot of practitioners look at GPT and, and ChatGPT as a product, and it's like AGI. Like this is this is autocomplete on steroids. Like there's still so much that we need to do and understand. So much capabilities and context. So much tooling and orchestration that needs to happen before this is ever a seamless enterprise user experience. And like um, one of my favorite writers, this guy Matthew Lindley, who writes uh, a Substack called Supervised. He had a great piece a couple of weeks ago where he talks about rethinking how we define the sort of iPhone moment in AI. And the iPhone moment is that where I would think of like, it doesn't mean that it is, it is, everything is perfect. Everything is great, right? There's still use cases that we're experiencing, but it is when a piece of technology becomes so capable that it can be general purpose without really massive, sophisticated, like services around it, right? We don't need help. Cloud computing is still largely that. Like you still have systems architecture that is built by outsourced providers because it's so complicated. Like even cloud computing, you'd argue, is like not necessarily had that kind of like iPhone aha moment where everybody can just like spin it up and it's really easy. We're getting so close to that. Can you look at like Replit again has built something like this where 
they can enable you to spin up hosting for your application that you've built in Replit and have sort of an end-to-end -end experience. So it's so close to that experience where I can just click a button and boom, have infrastructure. But it's still not quite there for like sophisticated use cases in production. And so we're still not there for things that we've had for 10, 15, 20 years. For AI, we're so far from that because it's still like you look at like, okay, like people are like, oh, just kidding, AI sucks because ChatGPT's traffic went down. And it's like, no, what you're experiencing is a limitation of the general population's ability to understand, conceptualize the use case of this thing and to use it every single day of their lives in everything that they do. Like we're still not there yet. Some of it is performance. Some of it is psychology. Some of it is UI. Like is chat the right UI for this stuff? We, we don't know. Like we just started playing around with that. So there's still so much that we can do. But what about, I mean, some of it feels to me like that age-old question of does every problem need to be solved with tech mm. and it feels like here does everything need to be used with ai or do we need ai in every piece of our life like you're talking about right i don't think that it needs to be because i like think about it like i don't use my iphone for every single interaction in my life right like when i want to talk to my wife i talk to my wife when i want to play with my kids i play with my kids or i, or I take them to disneyland or i take them to I think whatever, like there are still physical experiences that like maybe VR someday will try and insert itself into those physical interactions, right? So even the iPhone is not 100% ubiquitous, but are there dozens and dozens of things in people's life, both professionally and personally, that would be improved by having like general purpose, like well-built AI in that experience? Absolutely. Like if I can chat with something and say, hey, plan me a trip to New York for me and my wife for our 10th anniversary. And it does everything and it books it and it, it you know, does ever puts everything where I need it perfectly, seamlessly. Would that experience be better than me being like, dude, like I got to figure out what a hotel, what's the best of things and look on Instagram and figure out all the stuff and whatever. Like would that experience be better? I think for sure. And so there's still so much more for us to tackle before, I think even before we reach the like, existential point of like like the um yeah. the, the jurassic park right of like we're so busy thinking about could we that we never stop to think should we like i don't even know that we're there yet like we're still it's still there's a lot of like very low-hanging fruit things that we could take off the table with ai that we're not there yet and then there's the broader implication of like okay where should that line be drawn where we stop and say hey what is what does it mean to be human versus what does it mean to solve technical problems Yes. So you undoubtedly have seen a lot of companies, I imagine, pitch you on agents and how they're using agents. What are your thoughts on them? I think it's super cool. I think there's, I've seen a ton of really exciting demos from companies that are building these sort of, um, you know, package services, if you will. Um, I think about it a lot of like, to some extent, I'd say there, there, this analogy breaks down very quickly, but I think there are some components of like microservices that you can look at and say like, there's some, a lot of really interesting similarities where we can say, hey, in what ways are certain problems to solve so well known and defined and replicable that we can package them into an agent and, and sort of solve that problem with a very specific purpose-built agent? I think there's a ton of use cases that that could fit really well. And in a way, even that I think like, so like prompt engineering has been, so speaking of like the sort of phrase of the month or whatever, right? Like prompt engineering is a really interesting thing because like chat as an interface is actually really difficult because probably the thing is capable is there are components of certain models that are more capable at doing the thing than you are at articulating in written language what you're trying to accomplish, right? Like, like I actually think like prompt engineering and like chat as an interface could like spark people being forced to like go back and like better understand logic and ethos and like understanding how to structure a sentence in a way to articulate an idea and all that stuff, which I think could be a really interesting side benefit, right? But like, it, but like in some cases, like you don't need to be so good at articulating the thing in language. If the thing is good at doing the job and you know that's the job you want done, let's just package that and get it done because that's, that is such a better user experience than forcing me to figure out like, 
how do I communicate in words the thing I'm trying to accomplish? You've said you've seen a lot of demos. This is where I think I'm still up in the air about. Can they get past demos? Like, can agents be more than just a demo? Because we all saw the rise and takeover of AutoGPT, but then if you used it, I don't know if you played around with it, but everyone that I know that played around with it, when I played around with it, it was like, great, that was a waste of 200 bucks on OpenAI credits. I couldn't get it to do anything that I wanted, and it just kept on going around in circles, and then when I tried to like push it another way, it didn't listen, and so it was like it was a full headache. Uh, I know it's gotten better from there, and there's a lot of people that are trying to figure it out, but do you have faith that agents are going to be stable and they're going to be able to do what we want them to do? Um, I think that the bigger, there's two problems that need to be solved. And one is actually really interesting. Um, and there's this uh, sort of idea, if you think about like how, um, this is getting very esoteric, but like how language is structured and how it works and what it means to be able to like think and stuff. And there is this idea that we um, leveraged in the deep dive where I will get the quote wrong, but it's basically like, um, like the 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 limits of your language are the limits of your reality. Like your ability to be able to understand and interact and articulate what something is, that's the limitation of how you know how much of your reality you can kind of control. And I think that what is interesting is like number one even though these large language models are very general purpose, they're still built on a subset of human interactions and human content that's that's built in a very specific way. And I think that what's been really interesting is I have found is that um, what, like, but take like image models, because those are, I think, a little bit more, they feel a little bit more like intimate and personal. Um, like what image model you prefer, whether you like mid-journey, Dolly, stable diffusion, whatever, Um it's actually like kind of like a personality test, right? Like a BuzzFeed quiz. Because um, I feel like different models react to different people who think in different ways better. And so like sometimes it's a matter of not just like this thing doesn't work for me. It's like, well, maybe you actually don't have the product that has the right underlying logic that fits your brain and your way of thinking and your way of articulating images and what they should mean. And so finding the right thing is really valuable. That's really tough because you're not going to get the broad swath of people to experiment with every single thing, especially when it's still as clunky to use as like getting onto a Discord server and having to figure out how to use it, right? So like that- Not name or name. Yeah, exactly. That, that problem has to be solved. Like you have to have a way to be able to uh, interact with a, every particular person um, without having to be limited by like your underlying data or whatever. The second thing is just like the performance, like the being able to use an agent in production um, for live use cases. Like this thing is like booking, like I said, like booking trips for me in real time or interacting with my employees in real time or whatever. I don't know. Like those use cases to be trusted in production, you just have to have a lot more performance. And I think the one thing that these models have not been very good at is like they're they're pretty good at like one sort of surface layer of exchange. So like there is an API and that's the one interaction where like I am Notion and there's GPT and Notion's interface has to go through the GPT API to get certain language, bring it back and have an output. That's one sort of interface. They're, they're pretty decent one at that, right? Yeah. If I have to go from me to through a chat to get a model, then that model has to go through me into my like Expedia preferences to book a hotel and then book a flight based on multiple different airlines and my preferences for airlines based on the where I want to go and where the best flights are, where the best prices are, whatever. That's like six or seven interaction layers that that agent has to go through. And I've never seen anything that's good at that. Like I've seen things that are good. Like within this application, I can ask it to run a job for me and it's great. Like Excel is probably the, the main sort of surface area. I've seen people build a lot of this stuff where it's like, hey, we have this this financial model and we want to do things and create things and put them here. It's really good at that, but it's always staying in one interaction layer. Once it has to start going through multiple applications, I have, I have yet to see anybody who has maneuvered that very well because the internet is still so complex that going from thing to thing to thing to thing in one seamless path is very difficult. 
Yeah, it reminds me of a conversation we had with uh, Philip from Honeycomb, and he spoke about how also if your percentage of error on the first hop is 1%, oh, yeah, you're screwed. then on the second hop, yeah, it just inevitably is going to go to 100% because of the amount of hops that you're getting. And each time, it the percent or the likelihood of you hitting an error is is much higher. And so that feels like, again, to me, that feels like something that, as you pointed out earlier, we are still so much in the early days. And we are really trying to figure it out. There is a lot of promise. But I, I wonder, man, like, are we going to sit here for the next 10 years and try and try and try and still be like flying cars or the skateboards that they had in Back to the Future? And it's like, where is that hoverboard, man? I really wanted that when I was a kid and we still don't have it. It's 2023. I think that the biggest thing, um, <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't, I also will name names here, but I think that people who believe that there is this like, AI spike of like, oh, tomorrow everything's going to change. Like, it's just a matter of days or a matter of weeks. Like, those hype evangelists, I think those people are as stupid as the people who think, like, this is nothing. Like, we're going to go into a, an AI winter and nobody's going to be able to accomplish anything that they promised and blah, blah, blah. I think both are stupid. I think that, like, the vast majority of technology, especially, but the vast majority of everything follows a very specific curve. And the example I always use is like e-commerce penetration. The people who thought like, so like e-commerce is kind of steadily risen in as, as terms of like the percentage of retail that's happening online. It has steadily risen up to the kind of call it like, I don't remember what, 18, 20%, whatever. And then COVID happened and it shot up. And the people who were saying, this is the new normal, you're going to get 80%, like we're going to have 80% e-commerce penetration because nobody will ever go back to going to a store those people were stupid. But the same people who also thought like, oh, this is going to exhaust everyone and we're never going to buy anything online again and it's the end of e-commerce and blah, blah, blah. Those people are also stupid. If you look at the curve of what happened, it's followed this, I mean, for literally decades, like since the 90s, it's followed this very steady curve, shot up in COVID and it didn't drop back down to where it was in 2019. It dropped back to about where it would be if it was following that curve of gravity, Right. And that is the that is how yeah. the vast majority of technology plays out. It follows a very specific curve. AI will continue to progress. We will continue to find these advances that make us better and better and better. And I think that the one thing that can accelerate that curve a little bit is just excitement. Like people are excited about building and therefore they will, you know, younger people will go to school and specialize in certain things. Companies will push the boundaries of certain things. And I think that all of that gets better if we can try and keep as much of it open as possible. If it's all happening in this closed garden uh, of one company, it is so much harder for everybody to make contributions and get excited. The more open we can be, the more we can push those contributions forward. And maybe we can't like step function change the way that AI progresses, but we can slightly accelerate the, the pace. Yeah, it, for me, it feels like it's almost like an S-curve where we are very much hopefully on that steep part of the S-curve, not on the leveling out part of the S-curve. And uh, I really like that idea of the excitement and the amount of money that is being poured into AI right now by the likes of the VCs world. I think that you're part of that, right? That is going to help drive the innovation forward. Yeah, may maybe. You, you've, like, I'm there with you on the excitement generally. Once you get into capital, you get into dangerous territory because there's a very similar like green bubble in the early 2000s where there was something like, I don't know, billions and billions and billions of dollars that people invested into new battery and wind and solar technology and stuff like that. And like something like 90 plus percent of it is just vaporized, like just gone, like absolute zeros, which is a huge destruction of capital. And that set back a lot of people trying to work on climate tech more broadly. And we've only just recently started to come out of that, like that, like capital induced winter. And so I actually think that like excessive amounts of capital can cause a lot more problems like excitement. Yes. And like progress. Yes. And like talking about it and leveraging it. And, and you still want capital to be able to, but if you start to put in 10 X the capital that this, it, ca the category really needs it's very dangerous because when that capital gets destroyed, if it doesn't work out, 
you have a bunch of people who have lost capital and then they are going to actively crap on the excitement and that makes it harder to raise capital yeah. harder to progress harder to make those so it capital is a dangerous drug man like you get hooked on it and it's dangerous it's that cold feet. I mean, look at what happened with crypto. Yeah, I mean, investing listen, in totally. Really well, and it's like, again, I, I even think like I was never a huge crypto uh, bull by any stretch. But I think blockchain can be really powerful. I think there are some use cases that it makes a ton of sense. But that the sort of 2020, 2021 crypto fever, that's going to set the industry back more than it's going to help it. Like it still, I think, can be important technology over the course of time. But that did more harm than it did good, in my opinion. Like it, it invited more hucksters that are going to take years to wash out. And Kyle, this has been awesome, man. I really appreciate you coming on here and sharing all about the openness of AI and how crucial it is to be open and not let this power and not let the AI crowd into one space. And I'm fully on board with that. I think so many of us in the community, in the MLOps community, love open source and whether or not they're contributors or they're just users that is a huge thing and so uh, we can get on board with that message yeah thanks for having me it's super fun to get to chat and like i said i'm super excited about how things will play out and it's always fun to get to kind of riff on what could happen this is skylar i lead machine learning at health rhythms if you want to stay on top of everything happening in MLOps, subscribe to this podcast now. 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 Now.